0: A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. The Sun Rising by John Donne Busy old fool, unruly son, Why dost thou thus through windows And through curtains call on us? Must to thy motions lovers' seasons run? Saucy pedantic wretch, Go chide late schoolboys and sour apprentices, Go tell court huntsmen that the king will ride. Call country ants to harvest offices. Love, all alike, no season knows nor clime, nor hours, days, months, which are the rags of time. Thy beams, so reverend and strong, why shouldst thou think? I could eclipse and cloud them with a wink, but that I would not lose her sight so long. If her eyes have not blinded thine, look, and tomorrow late tell me whether both the Indias of Spice and mine be where thou lefts them, or lie here with me. Ask for those kings whom thou sawst yesterday, and thou shalt hear All here in one bed lay. She is all states, and all princes I. Nothing else is. Princes do but play us. Compared to this, all honours mimic, all wealth alchemy. Thou, son, art half as happy as we, In that the world's contracted thus. Thine age asks ease, and since thy duties be to warm the world, that's done in warming us. Shine here to us, and thou art everywhere. This bed, thy centre is, these walls, thy sphere. This poem captures one of the greatest feelings in life, waking in bed with your lover and feeling that all love, all happiness is contained within the four walls of the bedroom. It was probably written early in the 17th century, but it feels as fresh and vigorous and relatable as if it were written yesterday. I mean, who among us has had this experience and seen the sun peeping in through the windows and not thought, already? And not wanted to stop time, to stop the sun rising, to stop all the clocks so that we will never have to leave this blessed moment. And obviously there are quite a few telltale details in the language and in the description that clearly place this poem in days of yore, but the basic situation with the lovers and the bed and the daylight seeping through the curtains hasn't changed in the 400 years since John Donne wrote this poem. It feels like a timeless moment which is entirely appropriate given that the central argument of the poem is that love is a timeless condition love all alike no season knows nor climb nor hours days months which are the rags of time And this sense of timelessness is one reason why the speaker of the poem is so outraged that the sun, whose passage across the sky embodies and symbolises the passage of time, should dare to intrude on the lovers. Busy old fool, unruly sun, why dost thou thus, through windows and through curtains, call on us? Must to thy motions lover's seasons run? (laughs) This is still funny, isn't it? The idea of the sun as a busy old fool who doesn't understand young love. And yes, it's quite ageist, but judging from the literature of the time, early 17th century England was a very ageist place. I can't help thinking of Hamlet's comment on Polonius, these tedious old fools. And later on, when he's just stabbed Polonius through the arras and killed him by mistake, Hamlet says, Thou findest to be too busy is dangerous, which was a proverbial saying, and it's entirely possible that Dunne had seen Hamlet before writing this poem as he was a contemporary of Shakespeare and a keen theatre-goer. So, right from the first word of the poem, busy, the speaker contrasts the joy he shares with his lover with the busy world outside. And he gives us a wonderful glimpse of the daily business, or busyness, that is going on outside the bedroom window. Saucy pedantic wretch, go chide late schoolboys and sour apprentices. Go tell court huntsmen that the king will ride. Call country ants to harvest offices. Prentices, i.e. apprentices, were very much a feature of London life in Dunn's day. They were the unmarried young men learning their trade. And part of the joke is that they were far more likely to be unruly than an old fool like the sun. So I think the phrase unruly son contains a pun because... When you first hear it, it could mean son, as in S O N, suggesting a father telling off his son. But of course, it's the other way round here, with the speaker of Dunn's poem, the unruly son telling off his elder. The detail about the king going hunting helps to date the poem. We don't have an original manuscript, and the poem wasn't published in Dunn's lifetime, but he lived under two monarchs, Elizabeth I and James I. And as James was a king rather than a queen, and also famously keen on hunting, that makes it likely that this poem was written in the early 1600s after the accession of James in 1603, and while Dunn was still young enough to contrast his youthful love with the older generation. And in Dunn's case, as we can hear, young love went hand-in-hand with youthful arrogance and a precocious cleverness which must have been really annoying to anyone who found themselves on the receiving end. Thy beams, so reverend and strong, why shouldst thou think? I could eclipse and cloud them with a wink, but that I would not lose her sight so long. And this is still funny too, isn't it? You know, the the insolence of telling the sun that he can eclipse it by simply winking so that it disappears from his sight. But it's also very clever to show by a, a kind of verbal sleight of hand how the greatest orb, the sun, can be eclipsed by the smallest one, the human eye. It feels like the answer to a riddle that nobody asked. Dunn was a pretty arrogant poet and person. But even by his standards, this is quite breathtaking. But, of course, his arrogance is turbocharged here by the ecstasy of love and sex. All the neurotransmitters in his body are firing on all cylinders. And, of course, it's absurd. The sun is only eclipsed for him, not for the world. He's shutting it out, but he knows it's still there. So, you know, there's a bit of a suggestion of an ostrich with its head in the sand. But it's glorious as well as absurd. This is the voice of somebody drunk on love. He's speaking in hyperbole, exaggerating, without expecting us to take him literally. And this is very true to the experience of being in love. It's empowering, transfiguring and often quite ridiculous, all at the same time. And the nonsense continues throughout the second of the three stanzas of The Sun Rising. If her eyes have not blinded thine, look, and tomorrow late tell me, whether both the Indias of spice and mine be where thou lefts them, or lie here with me. Ask for those kings whom thou sawst yesterday and thou shalt hear all here in one bed lay. Everybody knows that if you look at the sun you will be blinded, not the sun, but dun is deliberately and joyously oblivious to this. And he's moved on from stopping time to collapsing space when he says that both the Indias, the one in Asia, plus the West Indies in the Caribbean, have left their usual positions and are lying in his bed. In other words, the earth has moved. Not satisfied with dissolving the laws of time and space, Dunn then proceeds to what in some ways is an even more extravagant and daring claim. First, he says that all the kings that the sun has seen on its travels around the world have also moved into the bed, which might sound like a little too much company. But in the final stanza, he makes it clear that he and his lover are actually supplanting the kings. She is all states and all princes I. Nothing else is. Princes do but play us. Compared to this, all honours mimic all wealth alchemy. So, he is subverting the social order as well as the dimensions of space-time. He's saying that he and she are the true princes. The princes of the world are, in fact, impostors playing us, i.e. acting us. Honor is nothing more than mimicry, and wealth is alchemy in the sense of a fraud. And This one is quite possibly the boldest and most absurdly arresting line in English poetry. Nothing else is. And on the one hand, this is how it feels when you're that intensely in love and Dunn is absolutely faithful to the experience. But this passage also contains more than a hint of anxiety because clearly it's not true that nothing else is. Lots of things are, as the speaker will remember when he opens his eyes and draws the curtains and looks outside, and eventually he and she will have to go outside and deal with all their duties and responsibilities and engage with the busy world that they have done their best to ignore and dismiss. So it probably won't come as a great surprise if you didn't know already to learn that John Donne was a very ambitious man whose dreams of a glittering career at the court of James I were dashed by his impetuous and secret marriage to Anne Moore, who just happened to be his boss's niece. And, you know, the marriage provoked the fury of Anne's uncle and father and ruined his reputation among the kind of people whose favour Dunn needed to succeed at court. So no wonder he had a chip on his shoulder about busy old fools interfering with his love life. And if you want to know more about the known facts of Dunn's life, including the likely circumstances in which this poem was written... There is an excellent new biography by Catherine Rundell, Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne. But today, I'm going to keep those curtains discreetly drawn on those details. Because I don't think that knowing any more about the real-life situation that may be behind the poem would add to our appreciation of it. In fact, I think they would diminish the poem. Because what the sun rising does gloriously is capture a universal experience when we feel we are taken out of ourselves and transfigured by love. So all the everyday details, the curtains and the window and the schoolboys and prentices and huntsmen and so on, they're like flimsy stage props, the bare minimum we need to picture the scene and believe in it. Anyway, having dissolved the physical universe and the social hierarchy, the speaker's tone shifts in the final lines. He becomes more mellow and expansive. You know, it's a cliché in movies for, for lovers to lie back and share a cigarette after their exertions. And it's even possible that Dunn and his lover were lying back and sharing a pipe together given that tobacco had already arrived in England by this time. So maybe we can picture him exhaling a puff of smoke as he says these lines. Thou, son, art half as happy as we, in that the world's contracted thus. Thine age asks ease, and since thy duties be to warm the world, that's done in warming us. Shine here to us, and thou art everywhere. This bed, thy centre is, these walls, thy sphere. This is a lovely ending, and I'm pleased to say he sounds a lot more satisfied and a lot less anxious and envious here. It's still very witty, but it sounds more like affectionate teasing of the sun than a brutal attack. There's even a hint of respect and affection towards the old sun when he says, Thine age asks ease, and points out that his wit can save the sun a lot of work. Given that it's the sun's job to warm the world, that's done in warming us, because four centuries before the supergroup USA for Africa, Dunn is claiming that we are the world. And he proves, in inverted commas, his absurd proposition with a beautiful closing couplet. Shine here to us, and thou art everywhere. This bed thy centre is, these walls thy sphere. Pronunciation in England has changed quite a bit since Dunn wrote this. So I think it's safe to assume that where and sphere would have been a nice full rhyme at the time he wrote. And that final image of the centre and the sphere sounds like a perfect fit at first hearing, but it also requires a bit of teasing out. And there have been differing opinions on exactly what he means by the terms centre and sphere – But I'm going to go with Professor John Carey, who wrote a terrific book about Dunn, John Dunn, Life, Mind, and Art. So, according to John Carey, the sphere in question here is one of the spheres of the ancient system of astronomy, named after Ptolemy, who lived in Egypt under the Roman Empire where the earth was at the center of the cosmos, and the sun and the stars and the planets moved around the earth in a series of concentric spheres. So this is where we get the phrase, the music of the spheres. And so in the poem, according to this reading, the bed is not the center of the sun, but the central point of the earth around which the sun revolves So, Dunn is literally saying that he and his lover are the center of the universe. I told you he could be arrogant. But it's the arrogance and the enthusiasm of youth, which we've all felt, and so I think we can forgive him. And if we have another look at that final line, it has another dimension that's maybe not apparent on a first reading. At least it wasn't for me. This bed, thy centre is, these walls, thy sphere. So he's saying that the walls of the room, which are presumably straight rather than curved, are the sphere of the sun. In other words, he's claiming to have squared the circle. This was, of course, a famously difficult challenge, first described by the ancient Greek mathematicians and conclusively proved to be impossible in 1882. But poets rush in where mathematicians fear to tread, and this is all of a piece with the bravado and wonder of young love, and also with Dunn's very original poetic imagination. You know... Most people wouldn't necessarily think mathematics to be a particularly fertile ground for romantic metaphors, but Dunn clearly did. In another poem, A Valediction Forbidding Mourning, he famously compared himself and his lover to the points of a compass used for drawing a circle. And much later in his career, when he was the Reverend Dr. Dunn, Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, he opened one of his holy sonnets with another extraordinary image of squaring the circle. "'At the round earth's imagined corners, blow your trumpets, angels, and arise!' Isn't that amazing?' So he's imagining the end of the world with the angels blowing their trumpets to announce the end of days. And he says, at the round earth's imagined corners. So he's making it as clear and explicit as he can that he is bending time and space through his imagination as he reaches out for a transcendent dimension. So, as we can see, Dunn had an incredibly vivid and original imagination, powered by a formidable intelligence. And this is a magnificent love poem, easily in the top ten, if we were to trivialise things by compiling such a list. He was also a phenomenal versifier. So last but not least, I want to take a moment to appreciate his skill in this department. The poem is in three stanzas, all with the same structure, and this structure, as far as I know, is unique to this poem. He varies the meter, mostly using iambic tetrameter, titum, 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 to iambic pentameter, which has an extra titum. And in every stanza, the second line is a dimeter, meaning it only has two titums. So, you can hear all three of these line lengths in the opening four lines. Busy old fool, unruly son, why dost thou thus, through windows and through curtains, call on us? Must to thy motions lover's seasons run? Notice how sharp and taut that first line is because it's just a tetrameter. It's only got four tetums. Busy old fool. Unruly son. Then we get the really short line, which makes the question stand out sharply, like the accusation it is. Why dost thou thus? And that is then followed by two iambic pentameters, which have a more expansive and discursive feel, where he's giving us more details of what the son is doing and teasing out the implications. Through windows and through curtains call on us. Must to thy motions lovers' seasons run? So, this is slightly reminiscent of, if you recall, the the blank verse series that we did where we looked at the way that iambic pentameter like this is a really good fit for a meditative, thoughtful exploration of a topic. Now, According to the scholar George T. Wright, John Donne and Sir Philip Sidney, who was a little older than Donne, were the first two English poets to regularly mix iambic pentameter with shorter lines in this way. So, for instance, he points out that in all of Shakespeare's songs, which often mix lines of different length, there is not a single line of iambic pentameter. And I'm frankly grateful to Professor Wright for doing all the research and checking this and verifying the feeling that this is something new and startling and exciting in English poetry. You know, the movement from these very short lines to the longer iambic pentameter, mimicking the movement of Dunn's thoughts, speeding up and slowing down as he reaches for analogies and superlatives and then considers their implications and argues with himself and the world at large in the course of a poem. I mean, he spends so much time thinking and talking and arguing in this poem that, you know, know, the, the woman who is supposed to be the central event and topic is a little bit relegated to the sidelines, you know? It's easy to imagine her looking over from the other pillow and asking... Are you all right, darling? You seem a bit preoccupied. And this dazzling effect is heightened by the rhyme scheme, which is as variable as the meter. So, with letters standing for the rhymes at the ends of the lines, the first four lines go A, B, B, A. So he rhymes sun, thus, us, and run. And this pattern is Reminiscent, is it not, of the Petrarchan sonnet we looked at last month. Except, remember, the lengths of these first four lines are all different. So this feels much more unsteady than the stately sonnet. The next four lines rhyme CD, CD. So he rhymes chide, prentices, ride, offices. And this is more like the quatrain in a Shakespearean sonnet. Except, in both cases here, he's rhyming a tetrameter with a pentameter, which keeps us off balance. And I think we should pause to savour the fact that in the middle stanza, he rhymes me with me, (laughs) which takes self-absorption to a whole new level. And so it's very satisfying and also frankly a bit of a relief when he finishes each stanza with a rhyming couplet formed of nicely balanced iambic pentameters Love all alike no season knows nor climb nor hours days months which are the rags of time The 20th century hypnotherapist Milton Erickson used to say that if you confuse your subject a little to begin with, then they will be more receptive to your suggestions as a way of grasping onto some certainty. And I think there's a little bit of that effect at play here. You know, after all the intellectual fireworks and the shifting rhymes and meters throughout the stanza, the closing couplet maybe rings a little truer because of its reassuring regularity and balance. You know, if you've ever been staggering around on board a ship, being tossed about at sea, you know that feeling of grabbing hold of the nearest railing with a renewed appreciation of the state of balancing upright on two legs. And if you're thinking you've encountered this effect somewhere before in a poem then maybe you're thinking of episode 34, where we also heard shifting meters and rhymes in the mingled measures of Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Kubla Khan. You may recall me drawing attention to Coleridge's use of an occasional shorter line as a counterpoint to the tetrameters and pentameters that predominate in Kubla Khan. And this technique of throwing in an occasional shorter line in sharp contrast to the longer iambic pentameter seems to have caught on after Dunn had shown what could be done with it. Shortly after Coleridge, John Keats used it to delightful effect in his Ode to a Nightingale. And in the mid-20th century, Philip Larkin did the same thing in the title poem of his collection, the Whitsun Weddings. We might even hear an echo of it in Claire Pollard's free verse poem At Peckham Rye, which she read for us in episode 39 and talked then about the way she likes to contrast very short and very long lines. There's definitely a song like quality. To the Sun Rising, and other poems of Dunn's romantic youth, so it's no surprise that the best-known collection of his poetry was titled Songs and Sonnets when it was published after his death. And as we've seen, it has something in common with Shakespeare's songs and with Coleridge's Kubla Khan. But whereas Shakespeare's songs are musical, and Coleridge's poem is definitely magical, I would say Dunn's verse is more mercurial, which the Oxford Dictionary defines as subject to hidden changes of mood, volatile, lively, and unpredictable. And of course, the word comes from the ancient Roman god Mercury, who the dictionary describes as the god of eloquence and dexterity, which all sounds very appropriate and applicable to John Donne, a quicksilver poet who was able to stop time, collapse space, upend the social order, and dazzle his readers with extravagant language that leaves them gasping with pleasure and astonishment. The Sun Rising, by John Donne. Busy old fool, unruly son, Why dost thou thus through windows and through curtains call on us? Must to thy motions lover's seasons run? Saucy pedantic wretch, go chide late schoolboys and sour apprentices! Go tell court huntsmen that the king will ride, Call country ants to harvest offices Love all alike, No season knows nor climb, Nor hours, days, months, which are the rags of time. Thy beams, so reverend and strong, Why shouldst thou think? I could eclipse and cloud them with a wink, but that I would not lose her sight so long. If her eyes have not blinded thine, look, and tomorrow late tell me whether both the Indias of Spice and mine be where thou left'st them, or lie here with me. Ask for those kings whom thou sawst yesterday, and thou shalt hear all hear In one bed lay. She is all states, and all princes I. Nothing else is. Princes do but play us. Compared to this, all honours mimic, all wealth alchemy. Thou, son, art half as happy as we, In that the world's contracted thus. Thine age asks ease, and since thy duties be to warm the world, that's done in warming us. Shine here to us, and thou art everywhere. This bed, thy centre is, these walls, thy sphere. John Donne was an English poet, scholar, soldier, secretary and cleric who was born in 1572 and died in 1631. He is best known for the love poems published after his death under the title Songs and Sonnets, but he is also one of the greatest religious poets in the English language. As Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, he preached sermons that held his audience spellbound, and some quotes from the sermons are as famous as anything he wrote in verse. His poetry also includes notable satires, elegies, and translations from Latin. He was buried in old St. Paul's Cathedral, and his monument, including a statue of him wrapped in his shroud can still be seen in the present St. Paul's Cathedral in London. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.